through 40 today. But uh, we're going to be examining the, uh, what has been known as the conversion of the, of the jailer in Philippi. And I think it's uh, appropriately understood that way. Uh, it's an intriguing text because it's, I, would, I would say at the same time, it's a bit bigger than, than just the Philippian jailer I think we're going to discover relatively quickly. But let's have a word of prayer and then we will start in our examination of the text. Let's pray. Lord, help us this morning as we <clears throat> look at, uh, once again, a familiar text for many of us. I pray that we will uh, not allow the familiarity to cause us to, to drift, but that your Spirit will be at work in us uh, to remind us of what we already know and to teach us new, but most of all, to be changed because of your Spirit at work in us. So help us to recognize uh, the truths that are discovered here and uh, change our hearts. Help us to bring, come to worship and to glory in you. In your name I pray. Amen. So, uh, Tom, thank you for reading the text this morning. It's an interesting storyline. Just to remind you of the past, uh, Paul is in Philippi. It, while in Philippi, he's, uh, he's gone out to the river about a mile and a half outside of town several times now, at least. And what he's been doing is he's been meeting with religious people that go out to, to worship because there's no synagogue. So they go out to worship God and pray. As you know, if you've been around in our study, you know that he, while he was there, the first Saturday he went out, he discovered a person by the name of Lydia. And Lydia responded to the message. Paul presented the message to those who were praying. Lydia alone seemingly responds to it that Saturday and becomes a follower of Jesus, is saved. At the same time, after that, he's continuing to minister. That is, Paul, Silas, and Luke are continuing to minister there in Philippi. And there's a, a girl that's following them, a slave girl. And she's possessed by a demon. And she is proclaiming the truth, isn't she? About Jesus, the Messiah, and the way of salvation. We talked about it last week, so I'm not going to dive into that whole discussion. But basically, all to be summed up, he rebukes the demon. The demon leaves her. The, the people who owned her are upset because they lost their source of income via her. And so they get him, uh, him arrested. Paul and Silas, actually, both of them arrested and thrown in prison. The accusations, unlike many of the accusations we see in the Scripture, the accusations that they bring to him, uh, against him are correct, aren't they? They're absolutely correct. And they go to jail after being beaten severely they get thrown in prison, and that's where we find our, themselves. Them, we find them in prison. You'll notice in verse 24, they're fastened by their feet in the stocks, and we talked about it last week. And they're thrown into the prison, and in the most secure of the cells of the prison, they are thrown into. It's a miserable place for them. They've been beaten. They're bloody. They're bruised. They may even have broken bones. They're sitting on a damp, um, most likely damp cold dirt floor maybe even wet muddy um, it's a horrible situation in stocks and what we find out almost immediately verse 25 it says in our text today about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to him I would I would present to you verse 25 establishes the very trajectory trajectory of this entire text and it's probably the most important verse in the entire text. It explains and opens our minds to understanding what's really going on. You'll notice that it's midnight. So this is a couple hours at least after they've been thrown in prison. They've been in there for a while. Correct? They've been in there for a while. It's tough. They're suffering. They're in amazing suffering an amazingly difficult suffering situation. It's about midnight. They've been sitting there now hopelessly from human perspectives for at least a few hours. By the way, there is no mechanism for them to be released. This is a precursor most likely to what will yet be to come at some point. And that will be most likely death. It's now midnight. And Paul and Silas are grumbling and complaining. Right? They're moaning and getting depressed, aren't they? Aren't they? 
There are, what's that? Not in that version, that's right. There may be a few perversions out there that say that, right, Tom? But not in any good version. It is interesting and instructive and important that we stop on verse 25 and hear the scenario about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And if I may just clarify a little bit, because I think it's very appropriate to do so, the hymns they're singing are not lament hymns. Now, we don't know which ones they specifically were singing, but I guarantee you they were not Old Testament, like some of the Psalms have some lament hymns in them. If you read the Psalms, you know several of the hymns are lament songs. And they're really dark. I would submit to you that Paul and Silas here are not, I'm jumping to the second part first, they're not singing hymns of lament. You know what type of songs they are most likely singing? They're singing songs about the Redeemer. They're probably singing songs, if I may present it this way, more like Philippians chapter 2. It is the letter to the same people that is in the city that, he's, that they're in prison right now. And the song in, in chapter 2 is all about Jesus' incarnation and his suffering and his death and his resurrection. I would submit to you what, what they're singing about is songs about their, redemp their redemption and their Redeemer. They're singing hymns that are dripping with gospel. And they're praying. We don't know what they're praying about, right? And it's really natural for us to think, well, they're praying, of course, for, they're for their release. Again, we don't have any data on that. I just don't see that in the greater sweep of Scriptures that that is, that is the very point. As a matter of fact, in the same book in Philippians, in the book of Philippians in chapter 4, what does Paul write in chapter 4? I've learned the secret of contentment, right? Whether I am in prison or free. That's one of the two categories he gives, right? There are other ones as well. But he says, I've learned the secret of contentment, and the answer to it is what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, I can, wherever God places me, I can glorify Him because He strengthens me for that very task, that very purpose. That's why I'm going through what I'm going through. It's a radically different perspective, isn't it? I want to remind you, Paul did not write Philippians chapter 4 in an ivory tower somewhere. He wrote it in a different imprisonment. Not this one, a different one that's a lot worse than this one. And he writes there, the secret of contentment is I can glorify Him where He places me. That's Paul's point. I suspect, and I think it's a very legitimate suspicion, that as Paul and Silas are praying, what they're praying about is, I think they're probably praying for the prisoners. I think they're probably praying for the jailer and his family. I suspect they're praying for Lydia. I suspect they're praying for those that they've proclaimed the gospel to in Philippi that have not yet responded. I suspect they're praying for some who maybe have responded. I suspect that they're praying that, that God will be glorified in amazing ways specifically because of their imprisonment. Is that a little bit of a radical difference from how we typically approach it? Just a little bit? But it makes sense in the grand sweep of Scriptures, especially if you've been following what we've been seeing in the Scriptures up till now, right? I mean, it's pretty consistent. 
I suspect Paul and Silas, again, are there praying about God being glorified specifically in their situation and through and because of the situation they find themselves in. Whether they live or die, whether they are imprisoned or free, whether they are hungry or full. And I suspect they're singing hymns that are dripping, not just with praise, but dripping with gospel. Dripping with gospel. And there's going to be, a, this is very important because it's going to, as I said, it establishes a trajectory for the entire text. I want you to notice what it says next in verse 25. And the prisoners were what? In the ESV it says what? We're listening. Does it say the same thing in King James? Heard. Actually, listening is probably a better term because Luke uses the term listening very specifically in the original language. He chooses it repeatedly. The word listening is only by Luke applied to those who are responding to the Gospel. It's intriguing. They're not just hearing. In other words, it's not just that their, their eardrums and the hammer are all working together and it's communicating with the brain and they're hearing. It is they are receiving. They are, they are learning of these things and they are listening intently because, and this is the primary thing, because the Spirit is at work in them. Go back to chapter 14 of Acts for just for an example. Chapter 14, verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. Remember, he was crippled. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and it's establishing a complete contrast to everyone else who's there who is what? Hearing. They're hearing what he's saying, but he alone is what? Listening. Very important. He is listening to Paul speaking. And then as a result, of course, Paul looks intently at him and seeing he had faith to be made well. In chapter 16 earlier, it doesn't actually use the word listened, but it is interesting, in, in the conversion of Lydia, it says he goes out, verse 13 of chapter 16, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women, plural, who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to... Pay attention. And that word there is the same, it's the same idea of to listen, to pay attention. There's a spirit-driven thing. I would argue that the spirit is at work among the prisoners. They are listening to them pray. Now it's really easy to miss miss the picture though, because it's really easy to say, well, how could all these prisoners be listening to them? Are they screaming at the top of their lungs? No. The prisons are not like prisons today that held thousands of people. Typically, when you're thrown in prison, you are not there long before you're killed. So it's not like they had people in prison for incredibly extended periods of time, usually. There were exceptions, but usually that was not the case. So you weren't usually there super, super long. So there may have been 10, 15 people in there. It's just a guess, but even archaeologically, we know they were relatively small pieces of, of or small enclosures. So the prisoners are listening to Paul and Silas both pray fervently to God for His glory and singing gospel songs about Jesus. And they're listening. They're, they're drinking it in. They're absorbing it. Now, is there any evidence that this was actually the case? Yes. 
there is. I want you to think about the whole story. We're going to jump down a little bit. Okay? What has happened to Paul and Silas at this point? They're in prison. But before they were thrown in prison, what happened? They were beaten severely. Correct? They're beaten severely. Now, all my life, you know what I've heard all the time? Once the earthquake took place and all the shackles fell off and the gates swung all open, the, shell, the, uh, the cells all opened up, which obviously is miraculous, right? That all their shackles would fall off at the same time. And the text here descri- describes what happened after the, after the doors swung open and the shackles all fell off, feet and hands. It says what? Verse 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. In other words, Paul and Silas are still there, but so are all the prisoners. No one has left. Now I've heard all my life that Paul and Silas kept everybody in the prison. I don't know if that's what you heard. That's what I always heard. And I've always thought, wait a second. They've had the stuffing beat out of them. They're in agony. They've lost a lot of blood. And they kept all these hardened criminals there when, you know as well as I do, if a criminal has a door open up and his shackles fall off, what is the average criminal going to do? He's going to bolt out as fast as he can. Y'all know that. Everybody knows that. And here's two guys. They're going to keep all the prisoners in there after being beaten severely. You know that's not the case. Why would those prisoners stay there? I mean, process it through. Why would the prisoners stay there? Here's the reason why they would stay there. Because the Spirit's at work in their life. The Spirit's moving. They would stay there. You know why they'd stay there? Because Paul and Silas stayed there. So why would they stay? Because Paul and Silas is staying there. They had the words of life. Now, I'm just going to try to connect some dots that I admittedly, are really separated. Okay, they're not real close. But I wonder, connecting the dots, I wonder how many of the Philippian church that received the letter that we call the book of Philippians approximately 10 years later, I wonder how many of those members of that church were in that prison that that night. I wonder. Who said, I, he's, they, those two are singing and praying the words of life. And I want to hear more. Because you see, that's what the Spirit does in people. The transforming work of the Holy Spirit takes people who a few minutes or hours before wanted one thing and one thing only, and it was what? To get out of prison. And a few hours later, they realized the real prison they were in. And it had nothing to do with cells or shackles, physically speaking. What it had to do with was spiritual and eternal cells and eternal shackles. And they'd been set free. Now, again, I know I'm connecting dots that are somewhat widely separated, but to me it makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense that they didn't leave because they wanted something more than physical freedom. They were hearing about eternal freedom. In Christ. 
Jumping back to verse 26. And suddenly, around midnight, suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, as we just talked about, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that all the prisoners had escaped, because it makes most sense. Now, some people have argued over the years, well, how would he have known? Why would, how, would, how would he have known they were all out? And how, how would he have heard Paul and Silas scream out? Well, obviously, if it's a small place, number one. Number two, typically the jailer slept right outside the door, outside the outside, outer gate. So he would have known all of it as it happened. And they would have been able to communicate because it's a very small, again, small enclosure. So... It, most likely what Paul and Silas heard was the pulling out of his sword to kill himself, and they hollered out, don't do that, we're all here. Verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. It's an interesting storyline, isn't it? Here is the jailer who has not just taken him to the jail, he's taken him to the inner jail and put shackles on them so they absolutely could not escape. He now realizes that he is going to die so he might as well kill himself his way versus tor being tortured to death by, by the authorities over him. When he finds out there's still everyone is still there and he sees it for his own, with his own eyes because he gets the lights, he does what? He rushes in trembling with fear and falls down before Paul and Silas. That's not fear for the people over him, is it? His trembling with fear originally was the, the people over him are going to kill him. But if they're all alive, then he's not in danger for people over him because he can't control the earthquake. But he's trembling with fear. Why? Again, I'm going to connect some dots for you. And maybe these are a little bit closer. I think they probably are. Now he's asleep when the earthquake happens. But I suspect before he fell asleep, he heard something. What do you think he heard? Praising God and, song and prayers, right? He heard them singing praises, gospel songs, and prayers to God. And then he fell asleep. Who knows how long? Could have been momentarily. The earthquake wakes him up. He goes to kill himself. Finds out they're all still alive. Falls down with fear before Paul and Silas, and then his words betray him, don't they? His words absolutely betray him. Because what he says to them next, as he's on his face before them, he says, it says in verse 30, then he brought them out and said, in other words, his first words are, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Don't miss the point. He's not asking, what must I do to be saved from my superiors? Because they're all still there. By the way, another thing that's really interesting, he doesn't lock everybody else up, does he? Doesn't say anything about the other, other prisoners getting re-locked up, does it? It just says he falls on his face before them, then he brings Paul and Silas out. And he brings them out, he says to them, what must I do to be saved? In other words, everything changes for this guy too, doesn't it? Everything changes for the prisoners, and then everything changes for the, for the jailer. Because there's only one thing important to the jailer at this point, isn't there? There's only one thing important. And it has nothing to do with the prisoners. It has nothing to do with the jail cell doors. It has nothing to do with the shackles. It even has nothing to do with his superiors because all the rest of the prisoners could still what? They could still bolt. But 
But suddenly, everything changes for the jailer. Because all of a sudden, only one thing matters. Correct? Only one thing matters. And what's the one thing? What must I do to be saved? He cries out with the question, what must I do to be saved? From the one you were praying to, from the one you were singing about, what must I do? In one fell swoop for the jailer, everything changes. He realizes the grotesqueness of his sin, of his rebellion. In one fell swoop, he realizes his hopelessness. In one fell swoop, he realizes that there is nothing he can do. And in one fell swoop, he realizes he needs someone outside himself. He cannot save himself. And he cries out to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, Paul and Silas say simply what? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Which is just a shortened way of saying repent and believe. You know, at first I was wondering, why didn't He say repent and believe? Because He's already repenting. <laughs> Isn't He? The evidence is really clear. The dude's repenting. He is broken. He's terrorized by his situation spiritually. And Paul and Silas say, repent and believe. And they throw, the, Paul and Silas throw in the other section in verse 31, and they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And some have actually argued that if the head of the household believes, then then the rest also become believers. That's not what the text means. The call is to believe and you'll be saved and your household believe and they will be saved. That's the point of the text. Believe and you'll be saved. And household doesn't just mean blood relatives. It means servants and everyone else. Repent and believe. You and your household repent. In this case, you and your household believe in the Lord Jesus. Verse 32, and it's interesting what happens next. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. It's an interesting phrase given here that I don't know what the right answer is on this because he changes it, household, to all that are in the house. Who are all these people in the house? It's an interesting question. We know that Paul and Silas are now in the house. He brought them into the house. He's speaking to those who are in the house. We know that the jailer's in the house, right? Most likely he's got a wife. And most likely he's got some children, whether they're adult children or what, we don't know because it doesn't declare. But I wonder, and there's, and there's probably some servants maybe in the house as well. But I wonder, I wonder if the prisoners are some, or at least some of the prisoners are in the house now. I don't know. Don't know who's in the house. It just says all that are in the house. And what is Paul and Silas doing? They speak the word of the Lord to him and all who are in his house. Who those are, we, again, we do not know. But he's proclaiming the gospel to them all. Verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night, that is, the, um, the, the jailer, and washed their wounds. Which means he took them to some sort of water close by and washed their wounds. Make sense? Because they're bloody. He washed their wounds. 
And then it goes on and says, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Now, if I may just pause on this, there are some people who believe in infant baptism and they go to this text. And they argue that, see, the, the children were baptized as well. But again, what do we know about who was it made up his household? What do we know? We don't know. Right? We don't know. It could have been a wife and children. It could have been a wife and servants. We don't know what it is. Good question. We'll, we're going to get to that in just a second. It's really intriguing. I think the scripture here answers it. Jump down to 34. Because it does talk about he and his family were baptized. But notice, verse 34. And or, then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Who believed in God? That the jailer believed in God. Who's rejoicing? The whole family, right? The whole family the, and the entire household, which also could have included servants, are rejoicing that he had believed in God. You know the implication of that statement is? What's that? That they were already believers. They're rejoicing that he believed in God, which implies something. A strong implication that they already did. Now, they're being baptized along with him as appropriate in that day because he's the, what? The head of the house. The head of the household. It may very well be and probably most likely in the easiest reading of the text is that they were already believers through his ministry. Their recent converts and finally the jailer believes, which if true means that he already had somewhat of a foundational understanding of Christianity. Does that make sense? He already has somewhat of a foundational understanding perhaps of Christianity if his wife and children were already believers because then the practices of Christianity and the discussions of Christianity would already be going on in the house. He may or may not have heard Paul and Silas speaking already. We don't know. But it seems most likely that they are rejoicing because they're already believers. It would make no sense that unsaved people would rejoice because their father became a believer in God, in Jesus. That would make no sense in any day, in any era. Especially not an era and a day and a place where Christians are being persecuted. Does that make sense? If you're not a believer and your family's not a believer and then your dad gets saved and persecution as a result you know is most likely going to come, are you going to rejoice that he became a believer? Not in a million years. But they're all rejoicing that he became a believer. Why? It has to be because they already were. And now... They're being baptized along with dad. It's an intriguing uh, perspective, but I think it's a right perspective. So, as you can see, it's not just the story of the conversion of the Philippian jailer, is it? It seems to be the conver conversion of the Philippian jailer, the baptism of the entire family, and perhaps, and most likely, conversion of a number of prisoners. Does that make sense? What do we do with the text? We've worked our way through the text. What do we do? With the, there's many other things we could say in the text, but what do we do with this text? So we got this historical lesson. But what do we do with that? We go on and say, "Wow, that's cool. We learned something new about." 
about the jailer's family. And we learn something new about, about the foundations of the Philippian church and the beginnings of the Philippian church. And we learn something new about the prisoners and a different perspective on, on, on how the prisoners and why the prisoners stayed in, in the prison. Is it merely a historical lesson? No, not at all. Not even close. Not even close. This lesson in this text is not really about a Philippian jailer and his family and the prisoners. It's not about an earthquake, a miraculous earthquake. It really isn't. What this text is more about is about the very thing that Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 4. What this text is all about is more about the stuff of life than about a Philippian jailer 2,000 years ago. It's about the triumph of the gospel over the stuff of life, isn't it? It's about the effect of the gospel in believers, in true believers' lives. Whether they're new believers, Philippian jailer and prisoners, or older believers, more mature believers like Paul and Silas. It's about the gospel that transforms people and their view on every little stitch in the fabric of our lives. Isn't it? That the gospel absolutely affects every stitch of our lives and, is infor- and, and the gospel informs everything that makes up that fabric. That's what the Spirit does. You know, I, I find it interesting how Often we do think about the stuff of our lives and we just wish this thing or that thing or another thing or the next thing or whatever it may be, if only that wasn't there. Right? If only that wasn't there or if only we could get past that thing. Now, we've talked about this before, haven't we? If only I could get past this or that or something else. And by even entertaining that thought, I am saying the gospel is not about that thing. Do you realize that? And the gospel has no power over that event. And that somehow that thing is separated from and has a life of its own outside of the gospel. And here we are invited in to Paul and Silas's life at a very, very low time that's just a precursor for many, many worse low times that are yet to come. Right? And what is this low time in their life all about? Praying and singing. <laughs> that's what it is, isn't it? Their response to this really low, horrifying, difficult struggle of their life is praying and singing. All summed up with gospel. Trust in the God of the gospel. A reliance upon and a continued trust in and exaltation of the God of the gospel. That's what we find. That's what the text is really about. You see, the, the jailer is, is, is the color of the story. It's a beautiful color, isn't it? But the jailer is the color of the story. The earthquake is the color of the story. The prisoners are the color of the story. The baptism is the color of the story. The real story. Even though it's found in only really one verse in the whole storyline. The real story is 
transformation. Gospel transformation, whether you're an older believer or a new believer. An older believer is transformed in praying and rejoicing and singing about the gospel in the midst of the lowest time up to this point in time of their life. Proclaiming the gospel. For one who is not yet a believer, but is the Spirit is working in, transformation. Staring death directly in the face and turning to the giver of life, the jailer. Right? Because of the gospel. It's about prisoners turning from their only hope of escape physically to their only hope of escape eternally because of the Spirit using the gospel and the family being baptized along with their dad because of the gospel and the resulting rejoicing. Amazing. It's about the transformative power of the gospel. Friends, can I just say this real quickly? I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt the reason why we get depressed and discouraged and grumble and complain and gripe when times are difficult, you know why? There's only one answer. Because we've forgotten the gospel. Because the gospel is not important to us. Because we really don't see and comprehend the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's because we don't grapple with and meditate on the depth and breadth and height of the love of God. And when we don't, this kind of ties into what I said at our annual meeting last week. When the time of preparation ends, it gets ugly pretty quick, doesn't it? And why does it get ugly? Because it exposes where our hearts really are. It exposes where our hearts have been all along. Not enthralled with, not amazed by God's grace. Oh, we'll sing the song Amazing Grace. But for us, too often, what's amazing is being set free from our little problems. Isn't it? What's really amazing to us is not God's grace to glorify Him in the midst of these things like we see with Paul and Silas. What's amazing to us is when we get healed. When we don't have heartache anymore. When world events go the way we want them to go. The way we think they ought to go. And we don't get the Rona. Or whatever it is. Isn't that what it usually is? That kind of stuff? Isn't it? And you can even hear it in the average Christian's verbiage about it. When Aunt Melba's big toe gets healed, wow, isn't God great or isn't he good? Right? As if he wasn't unless he, Aunt Melba's toe got healed. You see, it's not, the storyline again is not, wow, isn't it great that God graciously opened the prison? (laughs) Because you know what? Ultimately, he doesn't for any of the apostles. Does he? Right? Ultimately, for every one of them. And all but John died a horrible death. 
John probably wished it a couple times. It's not about the amazing miracle of an earthquake and the doors opening up and the, and the shackles falling off. It's about the praying and the singing, but it's not even ultimately about the praying and singing, is it? It's about the actual gospel because that's what's causing them by the Spirit to what? Pray and sing. And then to talk to the jailer and his family about about the gospel, about Jesus. Oh, friends, that's what we need to be praying about, don't we? You know what our primary prayer ought to be in light of this text? It ought to be about the gospel. But you know what? If you're not moved by the gospel today, if you don't find yourself moved when we sing gospel songs up here, if you don't find yourself drawn to that, singing from your heart, enthralled with what we're talking about and singing about, if you don't, you know what that means? It means primary prayer ought to be about God, inflame my cold, hard heart. So that I will find myself praying and singing hymns of gospel. Change my frozen heart, my cold, dark, hard, hard as a stone heart. That's what Hebrews is about, isn't it? The after it today, while it's still today, lest you get a cold heart. This is one of the classic evidences of if we've got a cold heart. They were not responding like this because we don't see the gospel as valuable. We don't value this pearl of great price. We're not willing to sell everything we have to buy the field where the treasure is. We take a sip of the gospel occasionally we take a sip of the gospel, we, we take a sip of, 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 the, of the truth occasionally. But if we really honestly examine our lives too often, we are drinking and keeping on drinking of something other than the fountain of living water. Aren't we? And it really is just mud in the bottom of the cistern because it can hold no water. What we have is the example of the power of the gospel. Moving in Paul and Silas, moving in the jailer and his family, moving in prisoners. And it is transformative. It does transform people. When the scriptures tell us that he gives us a new heart, he does give us a new heart. When it says that he makes us alive, it means he makes us alive. It doesn't mean he turns us into a zombie. He makes us alive. That's what it means. And the evidence in this storyline is exactly that. So you join with me? We pray and we ask God to work in our lives, work in our hearts. Ask God to transform us so that the gospel that we behold is as amazing and powerful as the gospel that transformed these people in this text. See, it's not about these people, it's about the gospel that transformed them. Isn't that right? And we will see the gospel as something more worthy than safety from imprisonment, safety from lashings and beatings, safety from rejection and hatred, and anything else we can add in. God, give us a view of that gospel. I don't know about you, 
but I'm tired. I'm tired of all the time that I spend holding on to a gospel that really isn't transformative. That really isn't this kind of gospel. And I want a view of the gospel like this. I want a view of Jesus like this. So that the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. <coughs> we acknowledge we are people who too often settle far too easily for a gospel that perhaps touches aspects of our life at times. But it certainly isn't the gospel that is described in these pages. The gospel is described in these pages is kind of scary, kind of terrifying. Because it transforms us and for too long, most of us, if not all of us, have thought that we kind of like our life. There's some problems and we'd like God to fix those. But God, you know, we, we kind of like the direction our life's going. Too often we are content, but content in all the wrong things. And we find ourselves just asking you to remove the things that don't cause us contentment. Help us to acknowledge that those things are brought into our lives for the purpose of reminding us that our only true contentment can be found in you. And so we ask you to change us. Transform our hearts, warm our hearts, soften our hearts so that our longing, our desire, our hopes, our dreams are things toward you and for your glory. And Lord, we ask that the evidence of that will be as we face the difficulties that are inevitable in this life, we acknowledge freely that you are sovereign, number one. Number two, that you love us. And number three, that those things have brought in, been being brought into our lives for your glory and your praise. And Lord, I pray that our praying and our singing will reflect that, that they will be gospel-saturated just as our lives are for your glory. In your name I pray, amen.